So, Holy Spirit, help us know how to apply those words to our lives this week. We ask this in your name. Amen. Good to see all of you. Good to see many of you returning from your summer travels. Awesome to have you. And for those of you who were, saw the announcements, were you didn't Rich do a wonderful job on those announcements with that little bobblehead of me having some fun at my expense? Yeah, it's, a, it's performance review week here, and Rich's is this week. It'll be really interesting for him. So it's great to see all of you. I mean, the Seahawks won. Huskies won, sort of. Mariners in wild card contention. There is a good and benevolent God in the universe, right? We, we can trust him. When I was 15, I was part of an exchange program to Mexico, and I had these visions of lounging on the beach at Mazatlan, just relaxing, but I did not read the fine print. For starters, it was for adults. Everyone else was in their 20s and 30s. I was 15. At plus, on top of that, it was actually not an exchange program. It was a poverty immersion program. Now, you may wonder why my parents let me go. Well, it's because I earned the money to go. I stubbornly insisted. And I think you just trusted more back then. So I was in this village where nobody, nobody spoke English, just me. But hey, no problemo. I had a whole year of middle school Spanish under my belt. Donde esta la biblioteca? Boom, we're good, right? Lived in this very poor village. The, many of the homes were just caves carved into the side of this hill. People used this mud street as a bathroom. Very, very poor. And the family I lived with had a dog they kept behind barbed wire. And the dad, in broken English, said to me, his name is Reddy. Do not go near Reddy. Reddy will kill you. Now, all of this, I had, at the time, I had never been more than an hour from my home in Richland, Washington. So this was all very, very shocking to me. So after a few days, I figured out how to call home from a payphone, And as soon as my parents answered, I started to cry. This is not the beach. I am not in Mazatlan. This is not what I expected. And they listened for a while. And then my mom said, do you want to come home? Why do you think I'm calling? Of course I want to come home. This is horrible. And then in a moment of parenting brilliance, my parents both said, you can't. You made this decision, you got to live with it, and you're going to grow a lot in the next six weeks. What kind of evil parents are you? You're Darth Vader, that's who you are, right? But you know what? I mean, and during those six weeks, they sent me letters, care packages, let me know that I was loved and all that, and they were right. I grew so much. I still rely on the lessons I learned in those six weeks. And when it came time to leave, I was sad. But for six weeks, I was in exile. This fall, we're doing a sermon series called Thriving in Exile. I've been looking forward to it since spring. Because we all have exile experiences, both as individuals, but corporately as Christians in a post-Christian culture. On a personal level, I think we experience exile when we're in a job we don't like or have no job or marriage difficulties, or health crisis, or when we feel lonely. And then collectively as Christians, it is easy to feel like an exile in a culture that increasingly mocks us and doesn't like us. Now some of that has been earned by Christians who have done some, you know, pretty stupid stuff. But man, do we have bad PR or what? And fewer and fewer people call themselves Christians in our culture. Even in the Bible Belt, less than half the population goes to church. I always joke with my wife that after this job, I want to work in a growth industry next. You're like, I want to sell something people want, chocolate. I'm going to sell chocolate, right? Growth industry, that's what I'm looking for. We're considered narrow-minded Neanderthals at best, 
irrelevant at worst. And all of that pales, absolutely pales in comparison to Christians around the world who are facing real persecution. And we should pray for them as we have been doing this summer in our worship services. And we should do what we can to defend the defenseless, which is why last week we took an offering to help persecuted Christians around the world. If you want more information about that, contact the church. But as we look around in our culture, in the world, in our individual lives, there are sort of these moments of exile, experiences of exile. But here's the main point of this sermon series. I'm going to give you the punchline right up front. When you look at scripture and history, the one inescapable conclusion is God does miracles in exile. In fact, exile has been too good for too many people for too long to be all bad. Now, you don't believe me. I know you don't believe me because I don't believe me sometimes. I mean, it's hard to get our minds around, but scripturally and historically, whenever folks go into exile, they revive and thrive. And we Christians have always been at our best, most joyful, most radical, and paradoxically most effective when we have been on the margins, not at the center of culture. The church thrives in exile and dies in comfort, which is probably one of the reasons why Christianity is exploding everywhere in the world except North America and Europe. The whole meta-narrative of the Bible is about exile. The basic plot is basically home, away, home. We start at home in the garden with God. We rebel and so are exiled from that home. But by revelation, we are home again with God. In Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham and his descendants spend generations looking for that land. They're exiles. Then they're slaves in Egypt. Exiles again. Then they, spend, they get out and they spend 40 years wandering in the desert looking for the promised land, exiles. In the New Testament, Christians are referred to as exiles, ambassadors from another kingdom, the kingdom of God, and we carry the culture of that kingdom wherever we go. Jesus is an exile, God himself leaving the comforts of heaven to come to earth to show us who he is. And in the passage that we read today, it's about one of the most significant exile experiences in the whole Bible. And the context is this. So after the Israelites got to the promised land, they forgot all about God, started worshiping idols, murdered their babies in pagan rituals, showing that being the center of the culture is not always good for us. And for 500 years, for 500 years, God sent prophet after prophet to warn them to stop or there'd be a problem. 500 years. That is a lot of patience, right? Like that, that is way more patience than I have with my kids, that's for sure. Like, I'm going to count to three, and you better, but it might only be two, so you better shape up, right? Finally, God said, okay, if the only way to get your attention is to let you reap the consequences of your actions, of your actions so be it. So the Babylonian Empire invaded, burned Jerusalem and the temple to the ground, and in several different ways, carted the Israelites off to exile in Babylon. Now, Babylon was just doing what Babylon did, your standard pillaging and plundering and all of that. But God was also using Babylon for his purposes. He was at work. Plus, it was also just the natural consequence of centuries of corruption that had so eroded their culture they could no longer defend themselves. So when they got to Babylon, a bunch of false prophets were saying, this is not going to last. Don't worry. Don't unpack the Samsonite. We're going home. Two years tops, we're going home. But God gives a different message through the prophet Jeremiah. And it's one that they didn't want to hear. It's one that we don't want to hear. It's one that I don't want to hear. But it contains promises of how we thrive in exile. So God says this, build houses and settle down, marry and have sons and daughters. In other words, oh, just you settle down for a long winter's nap. 
right? You're not going home in two years like those false prophets. Just, you, then he says, in 70 years, I'll take you back to Jerusalem. What? I'll be dead in 70 years. Everyone would be dead in 70 years. And if that's not bad enough, then God goes on to say the really irritating thing. Okay, you ready for the really irritating thing that God says? This is super irritating. God says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you will prosper. What? Bless Babylon, the conquerors, the oppressors, the pagans, the idolaters, the ones who have heard it. Bless them. You've got to be kidding me, God. It is, shy. it is radical. It is scandalous. And it's a first in human history. But it is one of the keys for how we thrive in exile experiences, and that is to bless others while we're in it, even people that are different than we are. God basically is saying, look, there are two extremes I want you to avoid in exile. One is just assimilate with the Babylonian culture around you. The other, though, is to get all obnoxious and demanding and insist on your own way in that culture. Now, just as a caveat, before I go any further, I want to just say really clearly, in this culture as Christians, we absolutely should advocate for our ideals in the marketplace of ideas. We should advocate for that. But could we do it graciously, not obnoxiously or in a bossy way? A few weeks ago, I went running and then to the lake to swim. And on, on the dock, there was this little girl about seven years old, super cute. And she said, hi, what's your name? And I said, Scott. And she said, Scott, this is boss lifeguard Gary. Gary, this is Scott. So I said to boss lifeguard Gary, wow, this kid's got a future in sales, right? And then she said, Scott, Scott, what you're going to do right now is you're going to jump off this dock at the same time with my friend. It's going to be fun. Okay, ready, go. And I said, correction, politics. So, so I took you a minute on that one, but boss lifeguard Gary thought that was hilarious. So I, I, I jumped off the dock with her friend, and then I swam out to the second dock that's sort of in the middle, the second dock that's sort of in the middle of the lake to kind of relax. She shouted to me from the shore, Scott, Scott, why are you just sitting there? To relax. So she left me alone for like two minutes. And then she said, Scott, Scott, it's time to stop relaxing. Now you're going to get up, you're going to jump in the water, and you're going to race my friend now. It's going to be fun. And I looked over, and there's this woman standing there with her. And the woman shouted out to me, I just want you to know she's not mine. <laughs> I sometimes think that's how... Christians are viewed in our culture. Now you're going to do this, and now you're going to do this, and now you're going to do this, or we're going to throw a big old fit. But God gives a different strategy. Neither assimilation nor belligerence, but engagement and blessing. And when he says, seek the peace and prosperity of the city, the word he uses in Hebrew is shalom, usually translated peace, lousy translation, terrible translation. It's not an absence of hostility. It's not, shalom is not an inner calm. It means a total flourishing in every dimension, socially, economically, spiritually, physically. And it's interesting, when he says, seek the prosperity of the city, the word for prosperity that he uses is also shalom. And then later, when he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, the word he uses there for prosper is also shalom. In other words, your shalom, my shalom, our complete flourishing is inextricably tied to the flourishing of the places that we are in, our neighborhoods, our offices, our workplaces. And in blessing them, somehow we are blessed as well. It's a spiritual principle that is just at odds with the principles of this world. University of North Carolina just released a study where they, a whole bunch of people, and they found in this study that what they called hedonistic pleasure, just 
you know, trying to gratify desire for money or comfort or achievement or whatever, that those kinds of pleasures actually increase heart disease, diabetes, and stress by a lot. But volunteering to help someone else decreases all of those things 78%. When we find ourselves in a hard time, in exile in some way, when we help others, it helps us. And the way we revive our culture, our marriages, the way we revive families, the way we revive folks in poverty, folks knowing Jesus, is by how we bless other people. That means working for racial reconciliation. It means working for the emotional flourishing of other people by how we care for them and how we listen to them. It means we work for cultural flourishing. And the only way to change culture, guys, the only way to change culture is not by shouting at it. The only way to change culture is to make more culture, to make more and better culture. And I'll talk about that in future sermons. And so many of you are doing this. You serve, you give, you care for others. I mean, we just completed our 10th Jubilee service day. So many of you do this in so many ways. Yay, thank you. You're part of the revolution. That when we bless others in exile, then we begin to thrive. Two weeks ago, I told you about my good friend who's dying of cancer, terminal cancer. But in the process of still caring for others and caring for me, and in the middle of that, finding these moments of joy in spite of the pain. And this power to bless other people, it comes from Jesus. Because you see, Jesus, when I was at odds with him, when he and I differed, when I was doing all the wrong things, he died for me, and based on that, I can care for, pe for people who differ from me. To thrive in exile, bless others. And then God goes on, and God goes on with this very famous verse, and he says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future which is the second way to thrive in exile, and that is to trust that God's plans are good, even if it's hard, and even if they're not your plans. Now, I don't know about you, I find that very challenging, right? I don't like that, See, for I know the plans I have for me, and they're good plans. I like my plans. They're awesome plans. They're the right plans. God's plans, maybe not the right plans. I know better, right? So I don't like this whole trust that God's plans are good even when it's hard. It's sort of like a joke I once heard about a frog who goes to a fortune teller, and the fortune teller said to the frog, you're going to meet this beautiful young woman, and she's going to have this insatiable desire to know everything about you. She'll be compelled to get close to you. You'll fascinate her. And the frog said, wow, where am I going to meet her? Fortune teller said, biology class. <laughs> you know, you dissect frog, never mind. That's, my art is lost on some of you. The brilliance of my, anyway. That's, that's kind of how, <laughs> person up here thought that was really funny. The, uh, that's kind of how we, I at least, view God's plans. Like, ah, they're going to be horrible. Because that's what God does, right? He loves to just kind of, but, but notice what God says, right? He doesn't say, I have plans and they're going to make you so miserable, it's going to be so fun to watch. That's not, that's not what God says, right? He says, plans to prosper and give you hope. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, his disciples thought that was a stupid plan. Like the worst, most meaningless, painful thing that could happen. Yet God used that to purchase our forgiveness and conquer death. God intends good. Trust that even in the hard. God intends good. Which brings me to the last way we thrive in exile, and that is lose the if-onlys. Because we got a lot of if-onlys in life. Don't I know I have a ton of if-onlys. Just ask my wife. I got a ton of if-onlys. You know, and we all do, right? If only I had this, if only this, if only that. If only I was married. If only I had more money. If only I had different parents. If only I had kids, or if only I had different kids, or if only I had no kids, or whatever it is, right? 
If only I lived somewhere else. If only then, 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 then I'd never be unhappy. Then I'd always be happy. Then I'd never ask for anything again. Please, Jesus, please, 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 please. For the Israelites, it was if only we could get back to Jerusalem then. But God says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You can prosper even in Babylon, even in Bellevue, even in Redmond, even in Issaquah. You can, even in Pasco, you can, well, maybe not there, but, you know, (laughs) everywhere else, you can prosper. In that job you don't want to be in, in that health, whatever it is. God says to the Israelites, increase in numbers there, do not decrease there. And he repeats in Hebrew, the word there repeats several times. In other words, you're going to increase and prosper, not some other place, but there. There, there in Babylon where you don't want to be. There in Babylon, that place of exile. There where you don't think I can do anything good. There, that's where you're going to prosper. And you're going to see I'm God even there. This passage contains one of the most famous verses in Christian subculture. Most of us have heard it, right? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, give you a future and a hope. That's a great verse. I love it. We love it. We quote it. You see it on, you know, sort of Christian posters and keychains and toothbrushes and, you know, all kinds of stuff, right? And we think, oh, how nice. God has a plan. We don't much care what God's plans are because we have our own plans. But it's comforting to think that God does have a plan should we ever be interested in God's plan. (laughs) It's nice to know that it's there, right? And of course, God's plan is exactly like my plan, right? God's plan, my plan, synced up like two really synced up computers. Like, right, on, right, just that's it. Right, uh-uh. No, not so much. What's so powerful about this verse is not the verse. It's the context. That's what I find so powerful about this verse. In context, it's way more edgy, way more challenging, but way more beautiful and powerful. God is saying you don't have to get back to Jerusalem to be blessed. I will bless you in exile too. And God's saying, even in exile, I am with you. Which for the Israelites was a huge aha. Because they believed to their core that God lived in the temple. But the temple had been destroyed. No temple, no God. But what they discover in exile is that God is there with them even there. Now you may ask, well, what good, can possible good can come out of exile? What could possibly come? Well, we're going to talk about that in future sermons. But just real quick, a couple of things. Good things that come out of exile. The Israelites were strengthened and purified in exile. Idolatry had always been their sin. When they got done with the exile, never again. In exile, we're transformed and become more whole people the way the Israelites did. In exile, we developed new abilities. As the Israelites wandered in the desert looking for the promised land, they developed an army, a government, a legal system. In exile, we find new friends, new community. New possibilities in exile, like losing one job only to find a better fit in the next one. And we get closer to God. This passage ends with God saying, Then you will call on me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me, and I will be found by you. See, in exile, God pried their hands off their temple, their power, their prestige, their position, pried their hands off of all of those things, and what they discovered in Babylon was God was all they had, and God was all they needed to find joy. And then in a couple of decades, the Babylonian Empire completely collapsed because evil empires have a way of caving in on themselves. See, it's not always easy, but exile has been too good for too many people for too long to be all bad. Woman in our church, who I'll call Carolyn, worked as an interior designer and loved her job. The creativity, the business, all of it. And after 25 years, had achieved a whole bunch of stuff. 
But then her marriage faced some challenges, and they've healed from those challenges, but, but, but for a while it was really painful. And then in the middle of all that, they had to move up here from Southern California, and that can feel like exile, can't it, right? As, as, a, as my friend, Pastor Mike Howerton, says, he came from Southern California, he says, it's like living in the produce section of the grocery store under the mister, right? You just <laughs> sort of feel like you're just a head of lettuce, right? Rich is from SoCal, right? You feel that way, right? So all of, she's got all these exile experiences, right? I mean, challenges in her marriage, having to move, loss of a job, you know, under the mister, all this exile stuff. And she ended up having to take a job working for someone else. I'll pick it up in her words. This is what she writes. Said, I was no longer my own boss and experienced a significant cut in income and prestige. It also brought a redemptive purpose into my life. I was relating to strangers who had no idea that at one time I'd been a big dog in my industry. And I also encountered a lot of outspoken criticism of Christians and behaviors that often challenged my values and caused me to fight my feelings of disapproval. So I'd often ask the Holy Spirit to give me wisdom and understanding, and I begged God to help me keep my mouth shut and show his love. In one of those prayers, I heard God say, just love these people and care for them. And that was a turning point. Rather than keeping up a protective shield, I listened to their stories. Eventually, the younger folks in my office began to come to me for mentoring, I believe because my heart had become a listening heart rather than a defensive one. And during the uncomfortable discussions about Christians, rather than challenging opinions, I found opportunities to talk about what we do here at Bell Press. Stories of the ripple effect of helping street kids in Rwanda, the Jubilee Reach Center, which is helping folks out of poverty, Eastside Academy, helping kids with tough backgrounds, and all the other ways Christians are blessing the Seattle area. Well, I never expected this, and it was a far cry from my work lunches in Beverly Hills. It even extended to a local bar. Me, this nice, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. No, I didn't. It even extended to a local, it's just the bar confused me, it got me all. <laughs> it even extended to a local bar. Me, this nice church lady, found that the best food was at this popular bar, so I carried my redemptive mindset there. And I became friends with the owner, the waitstaff, the bartenders, all tattooed, pierced, with bright colored hair, different than me, but I loved them. All were hardworking mothers, many not married, and they began to tell me their stories, even though they knew that I was a Christian. Some of those women had financial needs, and once, once we even raised money around the bar for one of the women who found out her kids, when we found out her kids didn't have beds. All of this was so far removed from my previous life of luxury and comfort. And I can't begin to express what joy I found in this experience. I had so many new friends. When I retired, they gave me a party. And during the speeches, my boss said there are many reasons we value Carolyn. Her creativity, she's our friend. But most importantly, she has changed my view of what Christianity is. Still brings me to tears to my eyes as I realize the beauty of allowing Jesus to redeem a difficult place and giving me friendship in unexpected places. And I still do lunch or have a glass of wine one-on-one -on -one or with the whole gang. And many of these young women still turn to me for advice about careers, relationships, other issues. And in those heart-to-heart -heart moments, I feel God's pleasure. Exile in so many ways. Marriage problems. Having to leave a job she loved. Working for folks who criticized her faith. But she blessed those around her even though they were different. Trusted God intended good, even in the hard, let go of some of if, if, if onlys, and in the process, prospered. Not financially, but relationally and spiritually. 
And did you catch the line where she said, I cannot begin to express how much joy this exile has given me. Thriving in exile. So what's your exile? How can you bless others in it? Trust that God, to the best of your ability, that God intends good even in the heart and let go of maybe not all, but at least one or two of those if-onlys. And as Carolyn did, pray often. Lean on Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate exile, who left the comforts of heaven to take on all the sufferings of earth. Executed outside the city gates, which is a symbol of exile, of the banishment that sin deserves. He took on the exile that we deserved so that we could find our home in him. And he walks with us in exile, and he is God still, even in the exile. And he has plans to prosper us, not when things get better, not only if, or how about when, not someday if, it just could be, not all that, but there, there in Babylon, right there in that place of exile, he has plans, oh, the plans he has for you, for me, for his church, and for this whole wide world that he died to save. Jesus, easy for me to say, Harder to believe. So in our victories and in our exiles, help our unbelief, help us to walk with you, guide us, and help us to see all the victories that you are working to bring about. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.